Christchurch, New Milden, Sunday the 31st of July 2022, 11 o'clock service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, God's Big Plan. How does Jesus fulfil the Old Testament? I'm sure you can think of a book you've read or a TV series or movie you've watched which has kept you guessing as to the who, how or why until the penny finally drops and everything falls into place. I remember watching the film The Sixth Sense years ago in the cinema and, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, I can clearly recall the gasps that echoed around the screen at the moment when everyone in the auditorium realised that the dead people Haley Joel Osment's character could see included the child psychologist played by Bruce Willis, who had been counselling him throughout the film. In hindsight, all the clues had been there, and one of my friends proudly announced afterwards that they'd worked it out ages before everyone else. When I rewatched the movie a while afterwards, it was so obvious to spot all the moments and hints which should have alerted the watchers to the truth. But our eyes were only opened once the big reveal was made. As I say, I'm sure you can think of your own examples, and perhaps you too got the chance to re-watch or re-read and comprehend just how many clues and hints were there, if only you'd had the eyes to see them. Perhaps that gives us a small insight into the experience of Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, which we heard in our reading from Luke 24. They thought they were following the plot, expecting the Messiah prophesied in the scriptures and hoping that Jesus was the promised one. But all their hopes had been dashed by his crucifixion and the rumours about his tomb being empty had just left them further confused. How mind-blowing for them to have Jesus himself take them for a walk through the Old Testament to explain exactly how he fulfilled every part, only for the gasp-out-loud moment to come when their eyes are finally opened to who it is who has been revealing the truth to them just before he disappears from their sight. Today, we're finishing our series about God's big plan. And back at the start, we heard how reading the Old Testament as individual stories and writings is a bit like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle without having the lid with the picture on it to help us see where we're heading. Once we realise that the overall picture is Jesus, it should help us to understand how everything slots together. That's why we're concluding our series by asking the question, how does Jesus fulfil the Old Testament? Now, that is a huge question to discuss in a short talk. Every book, every chapter, every verse of the Old Testament is a puzzle piece which is part of the big picture fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not sure whether you go about putting together a jigsaw in the same way I do. 
I got back into good practice during the various lockdowns. I start with the corners and edges, then focus on a key element such as a person or building, then sort the remaining pieces according to shade or theme. There are fundamental truths and doctrines presented in the Old Testament, like the corners and edges, which point to Jesus. There are people and places which foreshadow Jesus. There are recurring themes and symbols which find their fulfilment in Jesus. If you were to Google the question, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament, you would find countless lists of the specific prophecies and promises which Jesus fulfilled. You will even come across people debating these in a manner reminiscent of the old saying, which came first, the chicken or the egg, by which I mean that they ask whether the prophecies were always going to be fulfilled, so Jesus didn't really have a say in it, or whether he chose to do certain things in order to fulfill a prophecy that had been made. That debate works for prophecies like him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but other events such as being born in Bethlehem and there being no bones broken in his crucified body were hardly decisions which Jesus could make. And anyway, it's missing the point entirely. It can, of course, be useful for us to know and understand these specific verses which were fulfilled in Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death and resurrection. And they are indeed awesome and mind-blowing to try to comprehend. But it is even more important and wonderful to see how the whole story of God's big plan fits together and finds its fulfilment in Jesus in every aspect. The theologian Tom Wright puts it like this. He was in himself the true Israel formed by scripture, bringing the kingdom to birth. When he spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, he was not simply envisaging himself doing a few scattered and random acts which corresponded to various distant and detached prophetic sayings. He was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition and of an entire world of hints and shadows now coming to plain statement and full light. This, I take it, is the deep meaning of sayings like Matthew 5, 17 to 18, where Jesus insists that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. As we only have time for a brief look at this entire storyline and entire world of hints and shadows, we might as well start at the very beginning. The creation story establishes key aspects of the storyline of the Bible. We see that God loves and longs to dwell with his people, but that the presence of evil in the world causes pain, suffering and brokenness. But right from the start, just at the very moment when Adam and Eve are being evicted from the garden, God promises that one will come to crush the serpent, in other words, to defeat evil. 
and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Here, in the third chapter of the Bible, we get our first pointer to the rescue plan, which will fill the pages of the Bible and find its fulfilment in the person of the serpent crusher himself, Jesus. If we fast forward through stories such as Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel, which further establish the devastation and brokenness caused by the effects of evil in the world, but also demonstrate God's continuing faithfulness to his promise of hope and rescue, we then arrive at the story of Abraham and Sarah. Here, in God's covenant with Abraham, we gain more insight into the promises which will find their fulfilment in Jesus. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we also learn that these blessings are available to flawed, fearful, mistake-ridden people like Abraham, whose faith in God's rescue plan was credited to him as righteousness. In one of his most faithful moments, he even experiences firsthand the prospect of sacrificing his only son, Isaac, only for God the rescuer to provide a ram in his place at the very last minute, yet another foreshadowing of Jesus. More fast-forwarding needed through meaning-laden stories such as Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers, and we find ourselves in Egypt, where Moses is called by God to lead his people out of slavery. And as we read the story of the first Passover, where the blood of the lamb secures freedom, liberation from oppression, and escape from death, we should realize that it's no coincidence that Jesus' last supper with his disciples was the Passover meal, and that his crucifixion took place during the celebration of that festival, which so clearly foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice he would make. Shortly afterwards, the Israelites are given the Ten Commandments, which were thought to be the path to righteousness and salvation, but actually demonstrated our need for a saviour because of how far we all fall short of God's perfect standards and purposes for us. Jesus comes to fulfil the law, both as the only one able to keep it perfectly and also as the one on whom all the penalties of the law were poured in order that we could be counted righteous if we trust in his redeeming sacrifice. Talking of sacrifices, we should also touch on the system of priests and sacrifices which was instituted so that Israel could have access to God's presence and could seek forgiveness for their wrongdoings. These were further symbols of the role Jesus would play in interceding for us and opening the way for us to be reconciled to God 
by his ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. As the curtain in the temple was torn in two, as Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, the need for these symbolic systems ended. No longer does a priest need to access God's presence in our place or an animal be killed for our transgressions because we are now God's royal priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter 2, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. More fast-forwarding through the time of Joshua and the Judges, where characters like Rahab and Ruth foretell the welcome to and inclusion of all peoples and nations, which, having been promised in the covenant with Abraham, will be made fully possible through Jesus. And we come to the time of the kings. The Israelites were desperate to be like their neighbouring nations and have a king, even though God warned them it would not work out as they hoped. Even the best and most famous of these kings, David, had major flaws. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, and the Psalms he wrote are powerful tools for us to express our longings, disappointments and hopes to God. But he also made some devastating choices with horrendous consequences. But God's rescue plan was still on track because he promised another king in the line of David, great David's greater son, who would reign on an everlasting throne over an eternal kingdom, King Jesus. And then we come to the prophets, where we can find so many of those specific prophetic verses fulfilled by Jesus, which I mentioned earlier. But we also find one more theme we should mention, that of the suffering servant, predicted by Isaiah in his servant songs. This was not the Messiah expected by the Israelites, a mighty warrior to crush the Roman Empire, but rather the Messiah who had actually been foretold and foreshadowed in every corner of the scriptures, who would defeat evil through loving, sacrificial service, through vulnerability, through weakness, through pain, and ultimately death. No wonder Cleopas and his friends' minds were blown when Jesus himself walked them through God's big plan and showed them how he had fulfilled it all, not as they had expected, but as God had wonderfully and perfectly planned. If we think back to the illustration I suggested at the beginning, imagine if I'd watched The Sixth Sense a second time, but made myself somehow forget or put out of my mind my knowledge of the big twist. I would have missed out on all the extra layers of meaning and the carefully thought out details which the writer and director included to be enjoyed and understood on subsequent viewings. Even more extraordinarily, imagine Cleopas and his friend reading the story of creation or Abraham or Moses or King David or Isaiah's servant songs or any other part of the Old Testament and ignoring 
all the extra meaning and fulfilment revealed to them by Jesus. Can you imagine them saying, that story of King David is a belter, isn't it? Action packed with giants and everything. David has so much to teach us about trusting God in scary situations, as well as warning us about the dangers of sin. I'm so pleased his story is in the scriptures. All of those thoughts are certainly valid reflections on the life of David, but if they left it there and failed to examine and understand David's life and kingship through the lens of its fulfilment in Jesus, then they would be hugely missing out. I've read different commentators and theologians using various analogies to describe the role of the Old Testament in revealing Jesus. One described it as a tutor, which teaches us who Jesus is, what he will do, why his ministry is needed, and how he will accomplish our rescue according to God's plan. Another used the comparison with a crossword, which has both straightforward and cryptic clues. The straightforward clues are those famous verses clearly and obviously fulfilled in Jesus. But the cryptic clues are the stories, themes, or books where you need to dig deeper to see how they point to Jesus. Yet another described the Old Testament as a treasure map leading to Jesus, the greatest treasure of all. You wouldn't solve the map and then forget about the treasure. So why would we ever ignore the fulfillment found in Jesus when studying the Old Testament? So what does all of that mean to us as we conclude our series on God's big plan? I think there are three particular points for us to bear in mind, which I'll quickly go through now and then tell a story to illustrate. Firstly, we must value the Old Testament and not think of it as second best and not so worth reading and studying as the New Testament. There is treasure to be found and much to broaden and deepen our understanding of Jesus and God's rescue plan. Secondly, we need to be ready to work hard and dig deeper to understand more of what the Old Testament has to teach about Jesus and God's big plan of salvation and redemption. As that analogy of a crossword teaches us, some of the clues are cryptic, or in the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle, some interpretations might seem as impossible as a vast expanse of sky, but that treasure will be waiting for us if we persevere. And thirdly, just like how Cleopas and his friend immediately rushed to share their newfound understanding of how Jesus fulfills all the scriptures with the other followers, and just as Philip immediately found Nathaniel when he had a revelation as to who Jesus really was, as we heard in our other reading. So we should want others to hear the amazing way that Jesus fulfills God's big plan. When it comes to sharing this with children, there are a couple of great resources to help. My go-to baptism gift is the Jesus Storybook Bible which is brilliant at telling the wonderful stories of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus as their fulfilment. And Nathan recently introduced me to an alternative option 
The Biggest Story, which also does a brilliant job and would be suitable for slightly older children. These books remind me that when I'm telling the exciting stories of the Old Testament to my class at school or to my godchildren, or when you're telling them to your children or grandchildren, we are selling both the stories and our listeners short if we don't go beyond the story and show something of how it points the way to Jesus. And that doesn't have to stop with talking to children either. I said I would finish with a story to illustrate those applications. I just got back on Friday from a week in Iceland, which was absolutely wonderful. I had been determined to finish writing this talk before I went away, but ran out of time to get it finished. But actually, in hindsight, that worked out for the best because of someone we met on the trip who most unexpectedly provides a great analogy. Our days on the trip were filled with mind-blowing scenery, such as volcanic craters, black beaches, glaciers, waterfalls, lagoons full of icebergs, lava fields, geysers and hot springs, not to mention the gorgeous puffins. So you can imagine that we were slightly underwhelmed to hear that one of our visits was to be, a man, to, be to a man called Udun and his stone collection. But it was a chance to use the loo after quite a long drive, so we all duly trooped off the bus. From the moment we stepped into Auden's gallery, we were blown away by his evangelical enthusiasm and passion for his collection. It all dated back to about 30 years ago, when, on a walk in the mountains near his home, he found a rock pushed up by the movement of the glacier, which had cracked open with beautiful colours visible inside. He carried it back home and asked around and discovered that it contained jasper. So he borrowed someone else's equipment to slice it open fully and polish it so the full beauty inside could be displayed. From that first discovery, there was no looking back. He invested in his own diamond blade and tumbling polisher. He spent every spare moment looking for more rocks which might contain treasure inside. He encouraged his brother to join him in this enterprise so that he too could experience the joy to be had. As the years have gone by, he's got better and better at recognising which rock will contain precious treasure inside. He and his brother once managed to transport a 47 kilogram rock down from the mountain using only a child's plastic sled, he told us proudly. And now he invites tourists into his gallery to see some of the treasures he's found. We entered skeptical, but all left bowled over by both his discoveries and his enthusiasm as well as clutching our own bit of jasper or agate or whatever, which we'd happily parted with our kroner for. Ordun knows there is treasure inside the rocks he lugs down from the mountain, so he doesn't just leave them untouched. He cuts through to the heart of them to find the treasure buried inside. He also isn't put off by the hard work and investment this requires. It's all worth it to him because of the wonderful richness 
waiting to be uncovered within. And he is passionate and evangelical for others to capture this same vision and to have a share in it too. I'm sure you can see now why I realised this unlikely character with his rather more than just a stone collection is a great example to us when it comes to the treasure to be found in how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So I say, be more ordun, but only when it comes to the scriptures. I think we have different laws in this country about dragging 47 kilogram rocks down from the mountains and the others in your household might not thank you for it. <laughs>